You may have trouble having or keeping erections. This is called impotence. Your doctor can help you treat the impotence with medicine, a vacuum device, injections into the penis, or a surgical implant that helps with erection. But the most effective treatment by far is listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Keep it dialed up at 88.3. got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have here Robert Boswell. Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, and do you mind if I call you Boz? Boz is what almost everyone calls me. <laughs> and how did that, I mean, how did that start? Was it when you were from, when you were a tot, or was it, because I can kind of guess how you <laughs> might have, the reasons for the syllable, but... Well, you know, my my father was principal of the elementary school I went to, and everyone called him Boz. And so when I started school, they called me Little Boz, and then it just became Boz. Even my teachers called me Boz, so I'm, really? I'm, I'm used to it. I like it. So but. even like, but you were, did the kids call you Little Boz, or did they just say Boz as, as well? They just said Boz. The little <laughs> dropped away, thankfully. That's good. Well, you're tall, uh-huh. so you... It, you took the fight to them. <laughs> <laughs> and then what did your mom do then with both of you as Boz in the world? Well, she didn't call me Boz, and my siblings uh, always called me Rob. And whenever I've dated someone, they've never been comfortable. Even if they called me Boz as friend beforehand, they would stop. It For some reason, you can't, I don't know, you can't go to bed with someone who's called Boz, evidently. <laughs> huh? So luckily they called me something else. <laughs> And that held true with Tony, too, then. <laughs> yeah, with Tony and her family, I'm Rob. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, thanks for being Boz for us today on Living Writers. Happy to <laughs> do it. It's great. Um, and before further ado, um, I'll read your short bio in the back of um, The Heyday of the Insensitive Bastards, out with Grey Wolf Press, 2009. And I should say this is a taped program. Uh, we're speaking on November 12th. 2010, and I enjoyed your reading so much last night at the art museum. Thank you. And so much humor in it too. You had people. I don't know when you're when you're listening. When, well, when you're reading, I don't know if it's how much that awareness can um, carry through with the audience. But there were different times where 
I just loved hearing different types of laughs that were ringing out at different moments. There's the always a, it's always fun to read something that's funny once people start laughing. There's <laughs> until that moment. There's that fear that people will say, you know, he was okay, but I didn't quite get it, you know, because if if you don't laugh at something that's meant to be funny, it just seems awful. Because yeah. then it throws your timing off, doesn't it? A little bit when you're reading it, even. It becomes a very long reading if people don't laugh. Yeah, so <laughs> that's true. Um, did did um, hmm? Has there ever been a moment where they've laughed before you thought they were, or somebody uh, finds a new place, a new point of humor in the story? Um, not in that story. I can't think. I've seen that happen before. I had a friend who gave a reading, and in the middle, she was saying, "I didn't even know this was funny," and. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of an unfortunate reading, actually. <laughs> where, where did that take place? Oh, I better not say. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, you don't want to don't want to incriminate the guilty or the yeah. innocent, because and the story that we're talking about, what you read, um, yet last last evening, the um, is the title story from the collection, the heyday of the insensitive bastards, um, assignment one, happier time, um, and then maybe later in the program today you'll. You'll be reading us assignment six, perhaps mental health, or yeah, I'll read the first part of that. Okay, <laughs> yeah, not the not the whole thing. I will lean away from the mic, so there won't be any canned audience laughter as we <laughs> as we go on. Um, okay, but as promised, the short bio. Robert Boswell is the author of novels, Century Sun, American Owned Love, Mystery Ride, The Geography of Desire, and Crooked Hearts. Story Collections, Living to be 100, Dancing in the Movies, and the present one, The Heyday of the Insensitive Bastards, a cyberpunk novel, Virtual Death, a prize-winning play, Tongues, and two books of nonfiction, The Half-Known World on Writing Fiction, and What Men Call Treasure, The Search for Gold at Victoria Peak, co-written with David Schweidel. A Guggenheim and NEA fellow, he teaches at the University of Houston. And again, welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. Boss. It's great to be here. Um, so now we can fill in other pieces of the biography, which is always so short. Um, <laughs> okay. The back of the book. Um, and, and I love how, well, you were born in Missouri, right? <laughs> right. Does that send shivers down your spine? <laughs> when this, the, the question begins, well, you were born? <laughs> <laughs> On the day you were born. Yeah, I don't remember much about that day, but it was in Missouri up until. And then I grew up in western Kentucky. That's really when I think of uh, childhood home, I think of uh, western Kentucky. And and that was on a tobacco farm? Yeah, we lived on a farm outside this tiny town called Wycliffe, which is, uh, Wycliffe is right on the Mississippi River, right where the Mississippi and Ohio meet, right where Huck and Jim missed their turn as they were uh, heading south. So you were fated to have some uh, literary, This you were already in a literary context um, from it, it early al- childhood. It always sort of seemed that way. You know, the South has a lot of uh, literary tradition, and uh, my family, um, they were, my dad especially was um, quite a reader, but he was also quite a storyteller. And whenever people would gather, my father and his brother would... Uh, would tell their stories, and they were usually stories of, that uh, were funny. You know that uh, the whole idea was to uh, 
drink and laugh and tell stories, and uh, I loved it. And so I just, I grew up believing I would be a writer because I couldn't see a better way to live. And to, and to be telling stories, the stories, the pieces. And what were your dad's stories about? Um, my dad's stories uh, were usually about um, how foolish people are, especially himself. You know, he told a lot of stories that would, where he was sort of the butt of the joke. But um, he, sometimes he told war stories, uh, but even they were usually, they were never combat stories. They were always stories about you know, one dopey thing and another that was going on overseas. and uh, The camaraderie that was surrounded, the the quiet moments or the training. Was it World War Two? World War Two. He he served in Africa and in Italy. I remember he told one story about being on a, a long drive and um, that they had a bottle of whiskey that they were quite delighted to have and that they had kept in one of the Jeeps. And um, when they stopped to get a drink, the bottle had broken, the neck had broken. Uh, the whiskey was still in there, but it was this <laughs> jagged edge. And um, his friend kept the bottle, just couldn't throw it out. And later, um, his friend in the Jeep came up next to him, and he had taken a silk scarf that he had bought as a present somewhere in Africa and put it over the jagged edge and was drinking. Because that would also filter any of the glass shards. Right. And so he was drinking the whiskey and smiling, and his <laughs> he, his lips were bleeding. <laughs> he was just <laughs> covered with blood and whiskey. And that was the kind of story my father liked to tell. So it's, I'm glad you, you actually told us that one, because now I can see a lot of where you're coming from, definitely. It's... Um, and I love how you characterize your father in the essay that you wrote, the title essay, The Half-Known World, that's in the the other the Grey Wolf uh, uh, nonfiction book, um, and where he is actually, you know, like a father can be, like larger than life, and he actually saves you and your friend Brady when you are off on one of your, like a, a literary, like it's sort of a, a story a created story become all too real when your adventure becomes the being lost. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were, we used to, we both wanted to be writers. He actually now is a performer, a songwriter. So, um, I haven't been in contact with him for decades, but I, um, uh, I've Googled him, you know. And, oh, maybe uh, we can find one of his songs and play. <laughs> but, uh, Brady and I used to, um, uh, when we would play Army or Civil War or Cowboys or whatever, we would play in chapters because we would sort of play the books and find some sort of uh, cliffhanger, you know, to be in the chapter and then start a new one. And we always played, uh, we both lived out on this county road and there was a stream that ran all the way down to the Mississippi, and which wasn't that far, you know, in the winter when the when there were no leaves on the trees, you could get glimpses of the river from the road. We were up a little bit uh, on a hill. So uh, when the creek froze, we just decided we would hike down to the river and hike back. But we had no idea that, of course, the the creek wound in all these incredible ways. So we hiked for hours, and we were still a long ways from the river. And somehow my father knew where to go and... and uh, found us and uh did you ever ask him how he did know that because he knew that land well you say like it was 
Well, he grew up during the Great Depression, and he would go down uh, to the bottomland there uh, hunting squirrel and uh, for his for the family to eat. And so, yeah, he knew he he didn't even have to think about it. Evidently, of course, we left tracks to the snow to the creek, and then uh, I never talked to him about it. Uh, he considered it, you know, sort of an embarrassing thing that I'd done that we weren't going to talk about. But he never punished me. You know, he was kind of always happy whenever I showed some gumption. That's the way he would put it, you know, and he, uh, so I miss him, you know. He, he, was, a, he was an interesting character. Well, in this, this essay, you, that certainly comes through, that you're, you're missing of him and the longing and, and how, like, even the, the moments where you, when you start talking about the river and you, I think you have him saying, everything returns to the river, Right. We were both outside peeing on the side of a hill when he said that, you know, uh, he had a, he had a quite the sense of humor, you know, and I, not all my stories are funny, but I uh, value humor in literature. And I really think it's very hard to find a great work that isn't, you know, really very funny. I just, um, reread War and Peace and you know and people don't think of Tolstoy as being full of yucks but really there is a lot of humor in it and Anna Karenina you know opens uh, with a very funny chapter there's uh, Tolstoy likes to laugh and is it something that once you're immersed in the world then you're you're starting to get some of the humor so maybe your second time through War and Peace was when you or did you always see? Well, you have that? to give yourself permission to think that um, you know Tolstoy. You can get it, or <laughs> that Tolstoy might have uh, liked to laugh now and then. Uh, I, I I find that sometimes uh, when uh, the semester starts, you know, and people, the students see me, and I have you know white hair, and I'm fifty something, and it takes a while for them to understand that someone my age might still like to be funny. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> You know, they, they, eventually they'll they'll understand that I'm joking around uh, part of the time. And, but uh, but at the beginning they're looking sideways somewhat. <laughs> uh, for some reason they're terrified. I don't. Uh, you know, uh, I I have uh, a funny effect on students. But once they get to know me, they, you know, then it then it things get better. <laughs> and what is it? Because um, you're you're talking about. Um, like the 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 yucks, because that's not what humor is really ever for when it's it's working well. Like with your characters in the in the the title story, the heyday of the insensitive bastards. It's a way of somehow. <laughs> this, I don't mean to sound cheesy here, but like deepening their humanity, where and you can connect into them. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, fiction has to work through indirection. Um, a good deal of the time. Uh, otherwise, I mean, the characters in Hey David, the Insensitive Bastards in that particular story are people who are uh, not only down and out, but taking advantage of other people, stealing and uh, drug addicts and so on. And if you um, don't uh, approach them through indirection, you're liable to wind up with melodrama or sentimentality or something like that. And so the humor actually permits uh, one to be um, 
to be more uh, direct and 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 uh, to get at the genuine circumstances of their lives uh, more completely. I think. Yes, because it is more of a showing somehow. Well, um, Nabokov has this great line. He says that um, the coincidence of opposites is inherently artistic. And what I believe that means is that when you find, for example, humor in, in a situation that is, you know, ugly and possibly tragic, that... Um, that it is inherently artistic, and I think it's because it, you're permitted to really see it. The under it undercuts the melodrama so that you can see the actual um, circumstance. Because otherwise, like even as a, as a reader, or certainly as a, a person walking around in the world, we have ways of like the defenses and the things that cover things so that we don't see or f- feel things, or we can be braced against them sometimes if it's. Um, not necessarily melodrama, but something, right? And this is that way in? Yeah. um, Fiction is not about, you know, teaching lessons. Fiction is about uh, inhabiting the world in a a manner that is useful and uh, inhabiting um, the characters' lives in a manner that permits the reader to uh, genuinely see them rather than see what they expect or what they've been told to see or so on and so forth. It's interesting that you say that. Like, it's not about um, teaching lessons. There's not that. Because I feel like there's... um, What is that phrase that sometimes is attached? um, And I don't think he likes it, actually, necessarily, but to Charlie Baxter, like like moral fiction or something like the... Um, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I feel like there was even like some panel at AWP about that at some point or, um. well, um, there have been, uh, writers, uh, I think John Gardner actually uh, Ah, started using uh, the term who, um, argue that, uh, literary art is, um, has to be in in some way, uh, moral. I actually think what he's arguing is a, is a more complex, um, I, I, moral may be an unfortunate uh, choice, but uh, word choice. Uh, I, I actually think what he's arguing is that um, when you're trying to get at um, the truth of a character's life, even though the life is fictional, you have to um, find some way to touch on something that is true to human existence. And it's not enough to um, to say that we all die and therefore life is uh, tragic um, uh, because that's ultimately, uh, well, in my opinion anyway, ultimately not true that life is tragic because we all die. It's, we ha- you have to get at something beyond um, the obvious, beyond um, the... Uh, what what you're going to see in the Sunday uh, after sc- the after school special or the Sunday program on um, family, you know you have to uh, touch on that which is true and maybe very ugly. So I th- I think what Gardner is, is suggesting is that you can't leave it at that. That um, humans. Um, However ugly some aspects of our lives may be, are also um, 
creatures that matter and therefore sort of by definition have have beauty in them and that um, fiction needs to uh, embrace that. I think that was largely incoherent, but uh, it's probably why um, uh, that that gets uh, confused so often. I, I, I believe he's t- trying to talk about the larger aims of literature. And I love that you said creatures that matter. Well, that to us, like to us in our right. Being a literary writer is a weird thing to be. Let me just tell you. It's, um, I mean, the way I think about my life is that I am trying to create something that doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of models for uh, how to do that, great models, great works of literature. But I don't want my my creation to look exactly like those. I want... Um, uh, there's no question that I owe a great debt to all of those works, but I'm trying to create something that doesn't yet exist. Chekhov says, you know, every story has to create its own form, and uh, I believe that's true. And uh, uh, Milan Kundera makes this argument that fiction is about beingness, B-E-I-N-G-N-E-S-S, you know, some quality of being, some state of being that we may recognize uh, in ourselves only once we see it articulated on the page and um, it's it's an it's a it's an odd you know state to live in the the world is full of narrative and yet most what I want to do is uh, while I embrace narrative is also to create some narrative that um, is not likely to be embraced by the kinds of narrative that we see all the time on television and and film, so yeah, I guess I guess it's true of anyone who thinks of himself um, as an artist or someone who is attempting to be an artist that um, uh, the the typical measures of success um, can't apply in some way because what you're trying to do is um, open doors that people don't recognize as doors. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. So it's a weird life, and I, you know, I'm pretty happy with it. But um, um, it's, you know, it, it can be hard to explain to uh, relatives or um, old friends who uh, uh, have very different kinds of lives, more conventional lives. But I also think that you don't need to do any explaining now because you you keep going in this. It's what you are, and but you also have proof in the world with these, with the books, with the publications, with um, the fact that um, you've written, like you write. So you started with poems at the University of Arizona, and then it shifted into to stories, novels, nonfiction. Um, yeah, I shifted away from poetry because I can't write it. <laughs> you mentioned that last night when Laura Kosicki asked yeah. you about if you were still writing poems and if you were keeping them for posterity. Yeah, I, I, I don't keep them for posterity. I, I, I think I told her I keep them for kindling. They, uh, That's I write... a nice sound quality. That sounds very poetic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very bad poet, and um, I 
Tony Hoagland, uh, who's a wonderful poet, is a good friend, and I show him my poetry, and we talk about poetry. I read a lot of poetry, but um, I can't write it. And um, But why? I, I guess I can't accept that, really. I can't either. That's why I keep trying, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a sad fact. You know, it's... Uh, uh, my my poetry is terrible, but um, but that's okay. I don't mind. You know, I write it. Uh, I keep writing the bad poetry, and uh, every now and then I steal something from it and then put it in the fiction. And um, other times, you know, I just uh, I just put it away. And every now and then I call up that file and I read it again. And I nod and say, "Yeah, that's really bad." And go on, <laughs> start another bad poem. You cannot be stopped. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> well, uh, the I guess it's kind of a pathetic thing, but I, it's true not just of me but of many writers that um, <clears throat> when we want to uh, take a break from writing fiction, what we often do is write something else. And <laughs> that's... Um, uh, I, there's something pathetic about that, but it's, uh, what we do. So I wind up, yeah, I write short stories, novellas and novels, and I write poetry and, um, the world will be happy to know that I have no intention of inflicting my poetry on it. Well, I think what you could do is, is, and maybe this has already been done, but you can have one of your characters with their poetry parading, I think. Don't you? Don't you think that would be? I, I could do that, but I have many friends who are poets, and I think I would lose them all at that <laughs> point. You know, so I don't know. I I think you can have faith that you won't actually. Are the are the poems in notebooks, or you said files? So does that mean on the computer files, or in a, an old fashioned file cabinet in in uh, in your your mining shack in Colorado, or? No, I I write everything on a laptop, and so I. Uh, I take notes, you know, I have a notebook with me, you know, when I'm traveling. Do you have uh, one in your pocket now? Like the uh, It's not in my pocket, it's in the it's packed in uh my computer bag. I've got that with me too, but I take the uh notebook with me most of the time just to um if I get ideas, I take notes for stories, notes for I'm writing a couple of novels right now and I'm I take notes on the characters and uh keep track of things. Sometimes I think I'm taking notes on one character and it turns out to be something that's going to be a, a new story. Um, you can never know when um, you're going to get an idea that will uh, be productive. And it's and so simultaneously you're working on these the two novels right now and potentially other. Is that, that how you work? No, and it's a really dumb way to work. <laughs> Let me just say right now. I don't recommend it to anybody, but... Um, I was working on a novel. I put it aside when the school year started uh, because I had a lot of work to do. And um, I, I had an idea for a story about a set of characters. I've been writing stories over the years about two characters. And so I uh, decided I wanted to write a story about um, one of the characters when he was a boy. And I... Um, looked at the other stories and there was one story about him when he was a teenager and he grew up in a place that was really cold there was snow on the ground <laughs> so I decided well Minnesota and um, I thought alright I'm, I'm writing a story set in Minnesota and I had to figure out what 
what year it would be when he was 12 years old because I just decided he'd be 12 years old and interested in a, in a girl for the first time. And um, I realized that would be 1959. So suddenly I was writing a story set in Minnesota in 1959. I don't know Minnesota very well. My brother lived briefly in Bemidji, but that was too small. And uh, Minneapolis is too big. The only other city I'd ever heard of <laughs> was Duluth. So I picked Duluth. And so I started writing this story. And after uh, a couple of weeks, I had 100 pages. And I realized that I was writing something else. And now I have 300 pages. So suddenly I'm writing two novels. And, and what? Wow. Okay. So this is the first time this you've had this happening. It's the first time I've ever uh, been writing two novels at once. Um, it makes you sort of into a crazy person, so, you know, I don't recommend it. Um, yeah, because what is your mind? Because when your mind's mulling and marinating, right? What, well, what I'm know? doing right now is uh, I sent a draft off to some friends to read of the first novel, and while they're reading that, I'm trying to get a full draft of the second novel. Um, sometimes when I'm taking notes, though, I've had a couple of... Um, occasions where I think I'm working on one novel and then I realize this really belongs in the other novel and um, that's a very weird experience and uh, it's you know it's interesting I, I, I as long as I'm writing I'm happy so I'm writing a lot <laughs> and how when you say it's an interesting experience about when you realize that is it because something in the the image or the scene scenery changes where you realize, oh, this is the different place. Like, is it, or is it something weird where, like, how they do with those face videos, where suddenly a face morphs into a different face, and or how do you realize that? Well, have you ever, um, you know, there would be some fact that you know but you can't think of at the moment, and you know as long as you're trying to think directly, what is it? What is it? What is it? You can't think of it. But once you quit thinking about it, it'll pop into your head. A lot of writing fiction is that way, and so that if you have a problem with a story or a character or anything in um, uh, in a novel or a story, and um, you say, well, I can't fix this, so I'll write something else, and you'll sit down and start writing something else, and you know what? It turns out you're actually writing to correct that problem. But you can't do it directly. There's some um, internal resistance to taking it on directly. So I've developed a whole series of strategies of how to fool myself. And it turns out, luckily, I'm very easy to fool. And, uh, you know, it's been a disadvantage in much of my life. But as a writer, it works out really well. I think I really understand what you're saying, boss. <laughs> I say there's uh, the great thing about being a writer is that um, no matter how foolish you are, how many dumb things you've done in your life, you know it all becomes material, and there are ways to take advantage of it. And um, there are certain things that are great disadvantages in every other part of your life, but when you sit down uh, at the uh, computer, they they turn out they can be advantages to being a writer. So uh, I found the right I found the right career. <laughs> You were born into it. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't, we'll take a short break, and then when we come back, would you mind reading a piece of um, the, the heyday of the insensitive bastards for us? Okay. I hope I can say that. Actually, I just realized that word. <laughs> I'm sure the FCC is. 
kind. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Robert Boswell will be back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Robert Boswell is here in the studio. Um, and and thanks very much to Jason Voss for engineering for us and finding these great, great songs. Uh, oh, the first song, actually, um, was one that, that you particularly love and listen to a lot. Right, Boz? I... Kings of Convenience uh, is the name of the band, and the song is Mrs. Cold. I, th- I think it... I think it's a great song. I think they're a great band. That's one of your obsessions now, safe to say. Uh, well, <laughs> I listen to a lot of music. To uh, actually, I listen. I found that it can kind of cleanse the palate when I'm writing between drafts. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It's probably another strategy to fool myself, you know. But it works. Well, and it's all, and it's what you talk about in the the Half Known World essay too, how you don't want to know every single thing about a character or a setting because you need to have that element of mystery well when i'm writing i i believe the the characters that are most real and most uh unforgettable and the things uh it's not just when i'm writing when i'm reading it as well there are characters that um seem to step off the page because the you while you feel you know them, you also feel that there's some quality to them that uh, escapes your comprehension just the way it is with people where even someone you've known all your life still has the capacity to uh, to surprise you. I thought I'd read um, a passage from uh, the title story, Hated the Insensitive Bastards. It's a long story. It has ten sections. They're each assignments that this character is writing from prison. His therapist in prison uh, gives him these assignments. And I'll just read the first part of assignment six, mental health. I ran into Barnett in a bar later that summer, a couple of weeks after his body had been mailed off to his miserable parents. He slouched on the next bar stool. I didn't know what to do. I decided to ignore him and drink my beer. A tap on my arm made me turn. 
Barnett slugged me on the cheek. I was knocked back but didn't fall off my stool. Even in the afterlife, he wasn't what you'd call brawny. He kept pushing with his fist against my cheek. The drunk on the other side of me threw his arm out to catch me. For a moment, Barnett's fist pressed my head into the drunk's embrace and held it there. The bartender nabbed Barnett by the collar. It was a working man's bar, and they were quick to take action. Barnett was identified as the offender and hustled out the door. "'You know him?' the bartender asked, setting a free mug of beer before me. "'Kind of. I didn't want to reveal that I had recently killed him. "'The man who'd caught me, a guy with tiny eyes like they'd been pecked in his face by a medium-sized bird, said, "'Maybe he doesn't like your face.' That would explain it, I guess. I understood at that moment why killers so often poke a hole in their best-laid plans by yapping about it in a bar. It isn't to unburden the soul, but to prove your superior knowledge on the subject matter. I finished my beer and hiked up toward the house, meeting Cleet and Lila and Stu coming down. They were taking the dogs for a walk. Since Val had died, Cleet had taken over their care. He conversed with them and had begun reading to them the Bible, newspaper articles, a book on UFOs, and Harry, the dirty dog, which was their favorite. He had told them about the source of the water that came from the tap, and now he wanted to take them on a hike to a high stream fed by a deep snowpack so they could see it. They should know this stuff, he said, inviting me to join them. I didn't talk about my encounter with Barnett until we'd passed through town and started up the trail on the other side of the river. They were understandably skeptical. He hardly had a personality, Stu pointed out. No way he's a spirit. It was Barnett, I said, although having to put the story in actual words had made it sound unlikely even to me. My jaw, jaw hurt, though, which was comforting. Some body or thing popped me in the jaw, I insisted, reminding them that I'd identified him as Barnett before he punched me. Why would a stranger hit me? What are the odds of that? Ghost seemed more probable. So, you're the kind of person, Lila said, who sees a creature from the beyond and just goes on and drinks his beer? I'll stop there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, all those characters, they seem so incredibly lovable in your hands, definitely. Well, they're a pretty um, ugly group of misfits, but I'm glad to hear that because um, I uh, I think that, you know, while they do terrible things, they wind up killing this guy, Barnett. Um, they, they, I know, and I'm laughing. That sounds <laughs> awful. I am not a... <laughs> They don't really have bad souls, I don't think. So um, I'm glad to hear that you that you care for them. And Cleet even seems almost like some sort of, I don't know, like Jedi Master or something. Like when he's doing the marriage ceremony and, and secretaries from the outer halls even come in to listen to <laughs> talk about stupid blind love or what it takes to... Yeah, and Cleet, I love Cleet. Cleet's one of my favorite characters. And in that... Um, and that passage, he's, you know, he's, it actually comes from my own thinking about um, Romeo and Juliet, how they have to be <laughs> like 15 and 16 
and what they're do- if if they weren't they could wait a month and everything would have been fine and there's no tragedy and we've lost one of the great works of literature but um but they might have they might have been around and they could have run off together <laughs> right they could have had a happy life um it, it requires a certain kind of um that story requires that they be that young and that they be um Stupid in the in in the ways of love that the that love is uh, going to be the most powerful thing and they will be true to it no matter what, um, which ultimately is you know even in our own lives um, something that we find uh, to uh, well it's stupid and. Um, and yet it's a kind of stupidity that we revere. That makes sense? Well, there are lots of kinds of stupidities, stupidities that we revere, as recent elections have shown. But um, uh, there are all kinds of other stupidities, stupidities that uh, – irrational things. You know, the, the irrational is um, – our relationship with the irrational is, is really curious. And um, I, I've – taken notes on a, a novel. I've written a draft of it, actually. It's not one of the novels I'm working on right now, but um, uh, just that our relationship to the irrational, we, we deny it most of the time, but we believe in all kinds of fantastical things, really. And so that interests me. Now, that idea of the, the magical thinking that even uh, uh, Joan Didion wrote so... Right. Gracefully, or or uh, about with loss, but then the same and with love, like that. Well, um, the writer who writes about this best right now, I think, is Alice Munro. But the <gasps> yeah, whole yeah, idea yeah. that um, two teenagers see each other and say, "Yes, it must be you and no other," and then you know, we believe that they have to stick to that <laughs> for the rest of their lives, you know, because they're married. Um, is utterly irrational, you know, and yet uh, none of us is is ready to say that uh, we're ready to just uh, turn our back on marriage either. Um, it's it's just fascinating, you know, how much uh, uh, of our lives uh, depends on something irrational that we do not acknowledge as irrational, and that we can't understand. But there's something about it that we sense that makes it worthy or makes it makes us more than who we would be otherwise one of the stories in this book is called lacunae and it's about a a character whose father is dying and his car is also giving out and he's really fond of both and uh um he uh turns both to his father and to his car for advice and uh you know they both help him out a little bit and um he moves forward in his life but i really do believe people have these irrational attachments to objects especially cars especially boys and cars you know um uh, i always uh, I've I've had <laughs> I, when I was young I had a series of bad cars, like most people, and um, I can remember uh, being with an adult in the car and driving along, and it had some kind of problem, and uh, I said, "Don't worry, you know this car always fixes itself." And sure enough, later on the problem went away, um, 
And you had faith in that car. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so I've, you know, I've wound up writing a, a story where one of the main characters is a is an old Mercury. <laughs> So. Yeah, I love Mercury's. <laughs> <laughs> and they used to be massive. Before there were SUVs, there was, like, the the massive Mercury. Those are great old cars, you know, and you had just the uh, bench seat, and uh, you could have all kinds of transactions on that seat. You had room for a lot of people and uh, <laughs> full three-course meals and all kinds of other things. That's true. And s- small children could stand up to full height in the back seat. <laughs> that's right, and often did. Yeah, that's another thing, actually. That in- Before the heyday of child seats. <laughs> right, well, one well, thing that interests me, you know, is uh, I look back on my childhood and I think, you know, why didn't they put us in a in seat belts? Or there, there are a variety of things that I, that I think about and wonder, you know, why wasn't that as obvious to them then as it is to us now? But what's more interesting to think is. What are the things going on right now that's going to be obvious to the next generation that, that you know, what are we doing that's dumb? <laughs> what aren't we doing? <laughs> yeah. I, it's, I, for some reason, I have this sense of foreboding with the cell phones and how we have everything so close to our brains. <laughs> I think that might be one of the keys. <laughs> um, that's a good guess. I, I, yeah. A grim guest. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Okay. Um, you've got living writers. Today, uh, we're lucky to have Robert Boswell here. His book, The Heyday of the Insensitive Bastards. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Robert Boswell is here in the studio, the heyday of the insensitive bastards, his latest collection of stories. Um, do you have um, uh, on your computer, are there um, short stories that are in various forms of blossoming too? Like, because uh, is, is that a form that you actually have worked with multiple going at once? Whereas, yeah. like the novels, you said this is a new development. You know, I always have a lot of stories. In um, some of them, I just have a few paragraphs written. One of them, I actually have just one sentence that uh, I really like. That sentence. <laughs> no, What's I'll, that? Can you? No, I I, I can't re- I can't remember the sentence verbatim. But it's about sisters, and that one is married well, and the other is married, uh, you know, badly, and that this is something the family agrees on. It's all one sentence a little more elegant than my uh, uh, paraphrase there I hope and uh, I know I'll write about that but um, 
Uh, it's I haven't written anything else yet. And um, are you waiting for the characters to shimmer in front of you, sort of the the women themselves, or I don't know what they're doing yet. Um, I, uh, in other words, I, I that sentence has taught me a lot about who they are and what the circumstances of their lives uh, would be, but. I don't know what they're doing and what I don't know the occasion for the story. So uh, once I figure that out, I'll probably, you know, get that rolling. But I've got a lot of things like that, and they you're right, they just float around on my uh, computer screen, and I open them up periodically and see if I can add a sentence or two. And then if one gets rolling, then I wind up with a draft. I try to get a full draft, and I've got several of those, probably four or five of those, uh, one uh, just got taken last night by a magazine, but um, something she said has convinced me I'm going to revise it before I let her have it again. I'm a I'm a compulsive reviser, you know. I I go through things a lot, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty drafts of everything. And is that when things are more known to you at that point, or still half known? Oh, it's um, it's very often. Um, that I've written a draft where I know the characters too well, you know, and meaning that they come off like caricatures or stereotypes or something, and so I have to uh, work to unknow them, you know, which means, you know, make them more completely human so that uh, they're not under my thumb. I, t- I, I think I warned you earlier, it's a weird way to live, you know, being a writer. But I'm wondering how you fool yourself into getting them out from under your thumb because what without making it feel like you're just trying on things for them to somehow make them mysterious or you, you know that I guess that's but maybe it's one of those things that you you can't articulate about writing because there are so many well that's the element of mystery maybe sometimes you write a story and you realize either from the get go or once you finish a draft of it, that it has been written under the burden of some intellectual idea. And um, once you identify that idea, then you can say, I'm going to make a change in this, what happens in the story, so that that idea no longer has any power over the narrative. And uh, doing that, you liberate yourself from the idea and you ha- you force yourself to re-enter that world with those characters and the lives that you have created and say, now anything can happen. And, and is that why in No River Wide, like the end of the book, the there's the mother and the daughter make such forceful um, appearances with Greta in the house? Um, no River Wide is the first story in this collection, and it's a story that I worked on for 14 years. And um, it is a very unusual story. It started out with an intellectual idea, and that idea was that sometimes in marriages, an outside party can actually be a stabilizing effect so that a marriage... Um, my first marriage one of my close friends became also her close friend and the three of us did all kinds of things together in a certain kind of way it was easier for us to be together when he was there also and um, it occurred to me that that is a state of being that is rarely written about we're much more familiar with the third 
party, you know, being a destabilizing effect. So I decided I'd write a story about two couples that were close friends, and then one of the couple, one of the couples gets a transfer and has to move away, and both marriages break up. And I wanted to to write to set the story at the time that the two women in the couples were now both divorced. Uh, the children were mostly grown up, and they were getting together and going to a party, uh, trying to see if they could reclaim their friendship. They've lost their husbands, they've lost their families, could, but couldn't they still be friends? Couldn't they still reclaim that much? And uh, the story taught me that they could not. I worked on that story for about eight years. And Did you think at the beginning it would, that they could reclaim that? I'm I sorry. didn't know. I okay. really didn't know. And... Um, I worked on that story for a long time. It got to the point I was pretty sure I could publish it, but I wasn't. I was also sure that it was not all that it could be, and I decided that I would have to change something to liberate the story from the idea that had created it. And so I decided that in one of the marriages, uh, there would not divorce, but the husband would die. And there, now the intellectual idea no longer has any sway over the story. Uh, once I made that decision, without making another decision, it just happened that um, he was dying of ALS. My brother was dying of ALS at the time. And it became um, a vessel into which I could pour my grief, my shame, my sadness, uh, all the things that uh, were haunting me at, at the moment. And the story took off in a new direction. And um, there, there were other things layered into that story. I worked on it a really long time, and I would not let it go. And even uh, Brett Lott took it and published it in the Southern Review. But even when he sent me the galleys, I said, I'm going to make some changes, you know. And he wrote, he, he wrote back, he said, okay, but don't mess it up. <laughs> and uh, 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 I'm happy with that story. Uh, and I think, it's, uh, I, I, I think it's my best story. It's certainly my strangest story. And so complicated. And how it's moving through time from the very first page, even. Now the first line is both things first. And it exists in two time frames simultaneously. And uh, I, that really comes, I have a longstanding obsession with this idea that what we do in the moment uh, is certainly influenced by the other things going on in the moment. But there's no question that all the things that have happened to us prior to that moment, many of those things are also exerting influence. And sometimes things from the past have more influence than things from the present. Because they're more with us somehow. And so to other people, it looks like we're just behaving irrationally, but to us it makes a kind of sense, even if we can't articulate it. So the story makes that disjunction literal so that the past and present are happening at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how I spend my time. <laughs> yeah, now... People wonder what I'm doing sitting at the computer all that time. That's that's what I'm doing, messing around with that kind of stuff. Well, and, and the computer is still... Um, so you must have electricity in that part of that ghost town that you and Tony bought. Um, is that 
is that true? Or maybe, maybe I have this magical idea of this place and how you have a post office too that you're well, renovating and so you're a man of letters <laughs> <laughs> that's right i uh my wife antonia nelson she's also a writer and uh, we decided a few years ago that uh for our anniversary we for years we've been buying art together and our daughter our daughter is an artist now and um, there's no room on the walls you know so um we decided to see if there's any part of Colorado in the mountains or northern New Mexico that's undiscovered. And uh, we found this ghost town, which is mostly burned down, but uh, the post office had survived. And we uh, bought the post office in about 150 city lots. And uh, I've been working on the post office. We bought an Airstream trailer. We parked it there, so we have a place to to live while I go out and do my bad carpentry. But my brother, uh, my older brother and my uh, brother-in-law have both been up there helping. And uh, Tony Hoagland, my friend, that came up for a week, and uh, he's a pretty good carpenter. And uh, I'm having a great time with it. it <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of impossible to explain uh, why you would invest in a ghost town. But... Uh, uh, we're having a great time. But part of it seems like you wanted a place where there's more space for the art. And maybe that can be in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the New York Times decided to do an article on it, and which has sort of changed <laughs> changed uh, my uh, the way I talk about it a little bit. Because what do you mean? Did they... Because uh, it was undiscovered, and you guys actually found this place, and... Um, well, the New York Times, somebody found out of, that we had this place, and so Tony did an article with them, and they covered some pictures, although we we gave it a, she gave it a false name. She called it Eureka, which is not the real name of the place, and uh, so we're hoping, that, you know, it won't be uh, discovered, but um, uh, they included some pictures, and now it's a little easier to explain to people, because if you see those pictures, you see how beautiful it is up there. It's up at 9,400 feet, and um, but really, a huge part of the appeal for me is to work with my hands, do manual labor, and doing the plumbing. I hooked up the septic tank. You know, it's um, I'm not particularly gifted in any of these things, but I like struggling with it for some reason. And and the really weird thing is, I'll work all day, and then it gets dark, and I go into my trailer, and I have time to write, but I can't write. While I'm up there. Uh, working as doing carpentry and whatnot, my brain will not give that up and turn it over to creating imaginary worlds. I've got to continue creating this physical world. And But as soon as I leave there, I can. But it's a strange phenomenon. That is really strange. Yeah. And you, that's something you would have no idea, that, that something like that could happen before you're there and it's happening. It was quite surprising. Yeah, but I it's it really just has to do with um, uh, holding perseverating on uh, the task at hand and how much more needs to be done. I mean, the place is really a wreck, so there's a lot more that needs to be done. But not a ghost town anymore. Uh, no, it's now population six. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you, Buzz, so much for being here today on the program. I've I've enjoyed every moment. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. And you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Robert Boswell, 
his latest collection of short stories, The Heyday of the Insensitive Bastards. Um, thanks also to Aaron for, from Grey Wolf Press for sending the books, Jason for engineering. Um, many thanks to Boz. Until next time. Mother, mother, <laughs> there's too many of you Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love here today. Father, father, we don't need to This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, November the 17th, 2010. In San Francisco, I'm Danny Wood. Coming up on today's newscast... Public outrage grows over invasive airport screenings, but TSA officials say pat-downs will stay in place. So if your question is, do I understand the sensitivities of people? Yes. If you're asking, am I going to change the policies? No. A lawsuit against Massey Energy will go to trial after the company fails to settle with hundreds of plaintiffs over alleged water poisoning from toxic coal waste. There can be up to 100 different kinds of chemicals, and a lot of them we don't even know exactly what they are. And we go to Cape Town, where activists from across Africa are fighting violence and discrimination against gays and lesbians. It starts with just the words, and then it escalates to um, physical violence. Those stories and more, but first, the headlines. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. After a week of write-in vote counting, Lisa Murkowski is the winner in her long-fought Alaskan Senate race. The Republican incumbent lost to Tea Party-backed Joe Miller in the primary, but then waged a write-in campaign. Miller tried to block votes in her favor by arguing that voters had to spell her name correctly to count. A constitutional referendum 